Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Napa know-how. Get all the quality parts you need at your locally owned Napa. Because right now, when you order from Napa online, you can pick up curbside at your local store in just 30 minutes. Or get your order delivered direct to your door with free one-day shipping and over 160,000 quality parts when you spend $35 or more. Quality parts delivered quickly and safely. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating stores, standard ground shipping and exclusions apply. It's that little chico pit boom, Mr. 305, but I said Mr. Worldwide, you already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC, let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken and you know, that's fire. Now, Bobo, you know that you could get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now, that's that's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on Negative to Positive, we're always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is, is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how our life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. Hello, Collider listeners. We are here today with the one and only Neil Gaiman, who is here to talk about his new show, Good Omens, on BBC and Amazon Prime. How are you, sir? I'm really good, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm so excited to finally see this make it to the screen. It's been quite a journey. It really has. It's been 30 years since we wrote it, which means it's been 30 years... It will take a few months since we first sold the film rights on it. Wow. Um, you know, I was in the hotel that we are in right now probably less than 50 yards from here. Uh, one of those back rooms just there. Um, and in February of 1991, Terry Pratchett and I were out, flown to Hollywood. Um, to work on the very first ever screenplay for Good Omens. So the idea that it's actually, we are here in this place 
um, feels like I've come in giant full circle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at something like this project where you took on screenwriting duties and showrunner duties, and you talk about back in 91 doing that first draft of the screenplay, and you talk a little bit about the evolution and the experiences of getting here and, and you know, what you worked on with Terry maybe that day versus what it was like to take on the project yourself and translate it into six episodes of television. I think the funny thing is that, you know, Terry Terry and I came out to Hollywood and had the kind of Hollywood experience that people joke about. You know, I just remember the, uh, you know, we, we've been assured that we were going, it was going to be a sensitive adaptation of the book as written. And then the Hollywood executive walked in, we've all been sitting around the table, and she's like, okay, so our plan is that uh, the, 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 the witch, uh, what's her name, Athenema, she's, um, she's like Julia Roberts, uh, Tom Cruise is the witch finder, and uh, they meet, they have a thing, but he's a witch finder, she's a witch, but the kid, uh, Adam, he like wants the witch to get together with the witch finder, and it's like a rom, you know, and I'm hearing this strange pitch for an awful rom-com. <laughs> And it's not our thing. And Terry and I, you know, did our did our best. But what was great about that was there were things that came out of those discussions which wound up informing the good omens that I was going to write 26 years later, um, particularly The Angels. Mm. You know, we just... Back then, in that version of Good Omens, Terry and I talked a lot about angels and needing them to make the story work. And at the time, we we hadn't quite figured it out. I remember Terry wanted them to turn on their, their halos and throw them like killer frisbees through the British Museum um, in a script that nobody has ever read and probably never will. But all of that stuff wound up when, you know, years later, Terry asked me to do the adaptation, and then he died. And it was my way of, I think, trying to fix everything. Maybe even my way of trying to come to terms with Terry's death. But... As long as I made good omens and as long as I was making something that Terry would have loved and as long as I was making something that was true to the book but more than the book but its own thing and as long as it was personal, you know, it felt and tasted like this handmade thing that was made with love. As long as I was doing all that, then it was okay and I was coming through on my promise to Terry. to make it for him. Absolutely. And I do think that I kind of tore through the episodes yesterday and the day before and very much found myself as a a fan of the book who hadn't read it in quite a few years going, oh, yes, I loved this part and and just really enjoying the the adaptation of it to screen. And I, I read something earlier this week about how you had to fight, you know, actually keep the witch burning scene in there as it was. 
How else did you really put forward this sort of mission to keep Terry's vision alive as you were working on it? I was there pretty much every day. Yeah. I mean, you know, you start when you're writing the script, and then, and then you're dealing with the practicalities of actually making television because you write a script as if you have infinite budget, infinite resources, and you don't. Mm-hmm. You get pretty fantastic budget and pretty fantastic resources, but it's not infinite. And then. So you actually have to come to terms with the fact that some things are going to have to go and some things are going to stay. But what was important for me as showrunner is I got to say what went and what stayed. And it wasn't always the things that the people who controlled the budget would have chosen. Mm-hmm. Um Episode three has possibly the longest pre-title sequence in human history. (laughs) And uh, it lasts 29 minutes and 6,000 years. (laughs) And um, there is not a sequence in that that somebody with power did not push me very hard to cut. Mm. You know, they, they... pushed for different ones to go, but they were very, very determined that, you know, if we if we cut the sequence in the church, we'd save today's shooting. If we could cut, you know, why don't we cut Noah's Ark? What about ancient Rome? You don't need that. We could... And, you know, the, the, the King Arthur sequence is much too expensive and so on and so forth. So there was a continuous kind of um, determination of, for me, I knew that I couldn't take any of them out without breaking the thing. Mm-hmm. I knew that I actually had a plot that carried through over those 29 minutes and that if I took one of those away, it would be like taking out a brick in an arch. The whole thing would fall down. Mm-hmm. So I just got to stick to my guns. Um, but I also got to work with Douglas, the director, and with Chesco, the first AD, who was doing most of the important, you know, stuff that a producer should be doing of figuring out when and how we could make things happen. We just made them happen. Pretty proud of us. I, I'm so glad that you stuck to that. That's one of my favorite parts of the series is that uh, enormous pre-title sequence and really that that relationship again having not read the books for quite a while I think since I was in high school I was just so moved by that dynamic all over again between them and we were we were just outside when I was waiting we were talking about you know how people always have this intense reaction to casting news right now it's Robert Pattinson as Batman and everybody's losing their minds and it felt like when these actors were cast in these roles everybody was like yep that's pretty much perfect. So I'm curious when you get these two pretty much perfect actors in for these roles, what was the process like of finding that relationship and these characters with them and then maybe seeing new things and new angles to the relationship through them? I knew I was going to have Michael Sheen in it from the beginning. 
Michael Sheen was here in Hollywood with me in 2011 at a lunch when Terry Gilliam first suggested that maybe the way to do Good Omens was the new television. Terry Gilliam is brilliant. Um, Michael was reading drafts of the scripts. Originally, I'd thought of him as Crowley. And then I started to realize that actually Aziraphale was going to be a harder part to cast. And that Michael really... Michael's such a lovely person. I don't know if you've ever met him. No. He's one of the sweetest men in the world. And he always plays these characters like Tony Blair or David Frost or all of these characters who are, you know, glittery and dangerous and kind of hard exteriors. And, and originally I thought of him as Crowley because he would have been another one of those. And I started going, you know, actually... What I love about Michael is his gentleness, his love, his tenderness. That's what I want to see as a Xerophel. So that was that casting done. Mm-hmm. And then I was writing episode three. I'm writing the scene where Crowley comes down the church aisle. And I thought, well, hang on, this is consecrated ground, so he's going to have to be bouncing from foot to foot like somebody who's, um, you know, bare feet on hot sand. I need somebody who can do that and not look ridiculous and deliver the lines and sell the whole thing. That's probably going to have to be David Tennant because I can't think of anybody else who could give me that. And so for me, at that moment, the casting was done. Mm. Um, Selling Michael was only difficult because when we had dinner... To for me to pitch it to him, he thought I wanted him to be Crowley, uh-huh. and so I had to explain that no, I wanted him for Aziraphale, and he's like, he was like, I'm in. Uh, David Tennant was a bit harder, not because of David, but because I had to convince the powers that be uh, above me that I wanted David and that David would be it. And they were very resistant. Really? Yeah. That surprises me. Um, you know, the idea for the casting for me went back to Terry Pratchett and me in 1990 or 91 talking about our ideal casting for Crowley and Aziraphale. And one or the other of us said, I do not remember who, that the perfect casting would be the late Peter Sellers playing both of them. (laughs) I was never able to get that quite out of my head. Uh And so when putting together my Crowley and Aziraphale, it was almost important to me that I had actors who could switch, who could... um, And you could absolutely imagine the other one playing... Yeah. The other one's role, and who had that kind of thing that maybe being very similar kinds of people. You're, one is meant to be good, one is meant to be evil, but you wanted that feeling that no, they, they aren't actually that incredibly different. And uh, once I'd convinced everybody, which I mostly did in the case of David, mm-hmm. by pointing out that unless they said yes today, he was going to go off and do something else tomorrow. Um, 
then you know then the casting was easy what I didn't expect was the magic chemistry I knew they'd be able to play the parts I didn't know that this magic thing would happen and I don't think any of us did um and it wasn't even that, you know, the, the first read-through, the first 10 minutes, they're just sort of figuring out who they are, figuring their voices. It's okay. It's not a thing. And then we got to the scene where they're drunk. And it was like watching two people learn how to dance with each other. And suddenly magic was happening, even though it was just the read-through. And that was the magic that carried on happening for, you know, the next five months of shooting Good Omens. It was magic. It was amazing. Things like that don't happen. And, you know, it's that... You can know that Stan Laurel is a great comedic actor. You can know that Oliver Hardy is a good heavy, but also does some, you know, has great comic timing and is a good dance from light on his feet. And then you put them together and suddenly you have Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. And it's not a thing... You couldn't have swapped out anybody else. You couldn't have put anybody... Else. That thing has happened because it's then. And there is a real level on which... That thing has happened because it's them. I very much agree. There were moments I, I love about adaptation that the same story will strike you differently. And there were definitely moments in this version that hit me much more emotionally because of their performance than how I had envisioned it in my book, or my book, my head, you know, I'm yeah. taking credit for good omens now. Um, yeah, it's they They do beautiful work. When you talk about, sort of you you as a showrunner get to be the one who makes the decisions when you did your master class you didn't do novel writing or comic book writing you did storytelling mm-hmm. and I'm curious as as you took this new approach to this different medium how did you get to flex your love of storytelling in a new way um, in two different ways one of which was making a story that existed into a thing for the screen in the way that I wanted to see it. I get frustrated sometimes when people adapt my stuff. Sometimes it's brilliant. Sometimes it's not. Um, but it never quite sounds like me. You can see people taking things which I know are features and treating them as if they're bugs and need to be fixed. Um, so for me, the great thing about Good Omens as a storyteller was firstly going, well, let me tell that story the way that I want to tell it and trust Neil and Terry. Trust the guys who wrote it to know what they were doing. Assume that their dialogue was really good dialogue and, you know, I may have to make it more concise. I can't let them 
you know, the drunk scene in in the bookshop where they're both talking about you know dolphins and there's a great bit in the book where they go off into this whole thing about a little bird flying to the end of the universe to sharpen its beak on a mountain and, and stuff like that. Um, and I wrote a version that was longer than the version that we shot, but even that version was immensely cut down because that scene would have been 10 minutes of the story if we'd shot it and we didn't have 10 minutes. I needed to, I needed my 10 minutes for other stuff. So I wrote the, you know, whatever the four minute version or the five or six minute version. And we took that down in the edit to the three minute version because that's kind of how you do this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was partly in that, it was partly also in those places where I needed to make new stuff. You know, the joy of writing the, um, the historical stuff. There was so much joy in that for me. The joy of needing to come up with a plot that keeps us ticking until the final seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, so reshaping the um, the plot in order for it not to stop halfway through episode six. Right. Um, that kind of stuff was also there's a storytelling joy in it because you are looking at the formal challenges of storytelling. You know, how do I keep people? watching until the very last second of this. I don't want anybody going, okay, well, the plot's done. I know what's happened. I wanted it just to propel you into the end. Mm-hmm. Really, um, I love watching someone adapt their own work. I find it fascinating. And I think it's such an interesting example of like how it's not necessarily about what happens, but how it happens. Yeah. And I felt that a lot watching this show. Which is obviously, I mean... A big point of contention right now surrounding Game of Thrones is that same idea. It's not what happens, it's how it happens. And I, what I like about seeing people adapt their own work is you take out that, like, you know, the third party who might do it wrong. And you, you just get to see, I think, a little more clearly, like, your storytelling process when you compare the two side by side, maybe mm-hmm. how you've evolved as a storyteller, what you hold most dear. Really well, fascinating. I think you're always, you always run the risk of the person in the writer's room with a bright idea. Mm-hmm. Goes, what if we did this? And everyone goes, oh my God, that's so great. And it's new. None of us have thought of that before. And you don't necessarily go, yeah, but that thing that we were going to do mm-hmm. that we're all a bit bored of right now, actually that would have worked. Right. And your fantastic new idea is only fantastic and new because it's new. Because, you know, it's like when you're, when you're rehearsing actors on something that is actually funny. Um, you know, comedy, you kind of have to remind them that, you know, the first time you did it, everybody laughed until they were blue in the face. Because... If you don't remind them of that, you know, fifth time through, tenth time through, nobody's getting any laughs before, they now try and fix it. And they'll try and fix it by throwing away the things that worked. Right. 
Before I uh, have to go with you, I'm curious. I, w- I was, you know, going through research and read this old interview with you and Terry where you guys kind of joked about how you had ideas for the sequel. And then I read on your Tumblr that you pulled from some of those mm-hmm. to help fill this out. Is this one of those things? Because there's a little bit of an open ending to the show where because of your emotional attachment to the project, would you ever be interested in a second season and pulling from those ideas? Or do you feel that this was sort of your love letter to Terry and your working relationship? It's very much my love letter to Terry. And also, you know, I took some of the most fun ideas (laughs) and used them in this, you know, the angels, for example, are absolutely straight out of the sequel. Um, I have now spent four years. I started writing episode one after Terry's funeral four years and a month ago and spent 18 months writing the scripts and then spent the next two and a half years you know, eight months getting it all set up and rolling and then uh, carried on shooting it until March of 2018 and then we were in post-production until January 2019. So, and it was my full-time job. Yeah. And it was a job so full-time I didn't have time to do anything else. I didn't get to write other things. I didn't get to make other things. I just got to do it. So I very much like being a retired showrunner. (laughs) And in my retirement, I'm thinking of taking up writing and finishing a novel that has been waiting for two years. Would you ever be willing to hand this story to someone else, a la American Gods, or is it too personal to do? I... I think over my dead body yeah. would it go to anybody else um, because this was just so personal yeah. um, excellent well thank you so much for your time it was lovely chatting with you thank you it was really fun excellent get all the quality parts you need at your locally owned Napa because right now, when you order from Napa Online, you can pick up curbside at your local store in just 30 minutes. Or get your order delivered direct to your door with free one-day shipping and over 160,000 quality parts when you spend $35 or more. Quality parts delivered quickly and safely. That's Napa Know-How. Napa Know-How. At participating stores, standard ground shipping and exclusions apply. Stay little Chico, Pitbull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.